Cricket Last Stories with me, Neil Kagram. Today we're joined by Paul Baldwin. This piece is all about umpiring. So Paul, first of all, can we just run through your career and uh, the high profile matches that you've been involved in? I started umpiring because I was captaining my RAF station side over in Germany and I made a very poor decision. But fortunately, the RAF's chief umpiring trainer was there at the time and saw the, the absolute horlicks I'd made of that decision. And he said to me, you're not going out on a field to umpire again until you've been on one of my courses. Um, so consequently, I went and sat the old, what they used to call the ACUNS, Association of Cricket Umpires and Scorers exams. Um, and this was in 1999 and in 2001 the German national side we were asked or the German national side went to play at the ICC trophy in Canada and the guy who was what they call the head umpire to the German cricket board at the time was also a serviceman um, but he had just finished his tour in Germany and he walked into my office one day with all of his files plonked them on my desk and said you're it um, at which point the invite to me was, would you like to go to Canada for 14 days to umpire the ICC trophy? Uh, bearing in mind I'd had very little umpiring experience up to that point. And I said, stupidly, yes, why not? Um, and we got over there and the first people I meet as, as we get into the, the hotel in Toronto, are Daryl Hare and Rudy Kurtzen. <clears throat> met up with Daryl and he said, You'd be doing quite well and we'd like to put you up to do an A division game um, which sort of shook me a little bit but I said absolutely I'd love to so I did Scotland against UAE it went on from there I was part of ICC Europe um, and then ICC Europe began began to flourish um, to the point where they would have under 19s under 17 tournaments uh, World Cup qualifiers all of this sort of thing uh, and I found myself getting invited to more and more of those tournaments, which was a, a great honour. I went to three under-19 World Cups. Um, I did two intercontinental trophy four-day four and five-day finals. Um, I, ICC uh, intercontinental trophy cup games, which were four-day first-class games. Um, and 19 one-day internationals and 10 or 12 T20 internationals off the back of it. And I was incredibly fortunate to get that opportunity. Um, and then in 2009, my job was coming to an end in Germany and things were all a bit up in the air. And I approached ECB and asked them if I came back to the UK, what would the chances be of me becoming a professional umpire? And basically I was told there are no guarantees. You have the opportunity to stand in some three day second team games um and we will come and assess you and we will see where we go um so coming back with no guarantees and i did three three day second team games uh the first one being hampshire against somerset at the rose bowl as it was sorry hampshire sussex but at the end of that year i was invited to apply for the reserve list uh which was the forerunner of what we have now um and i was accepted after interview uh and then started five years on what was at the time known as as the reserve list for ecb um i was then promoted at the end of 2014 to the full list and that's where i am now so do you have any aspirations to then get onto the elite panel testing well, everybody does 
Everybody does, surely. I mean, the ultimate aspiration of any sportsman or sports official is to umpire or officiate or play at the highest level that you possibly can. Now, that's not going to happen for everybody. Um, and as you probably, as you just heard, some of my career was a wee bit back to front. So I did England, Ireland. I did England, Scotland. Um, games like that, uh, New Zealand against Ireland and these sort of things. So I've done full member nations against associate nations. Um, but within ECB, the, the quality and the standard of umpiring is so good. And there are, there are 25 of us on the full list. Um, and there's another 10 on the, what they call the contracted list. And everybody is an outstanding umpire. And, you know, to be measured against people like that in the first place is an honor. But then to be considered good enough to go on to be on the international panel or potentially to go to the elite panel at ICC would be a huge honor. Um, I'm not going to count my chickens. What is uh, the selection criteria which could potentially for you to get to make that step up? Well, there, there are different levels within our group. So you have the, the guys who are contracted, so effect, effectively the reserve list, and then you have the fully contracted guys. Um, so you, you start off and you have a couple of years of probation to make sure that ECB have got the right people. And then you go from there to first class umpire. And then from there you would go to um, what is the accredited list. So you're working your way towards basically your badges if you like, for ICC. So ICC have a load of criteria around how to use DRS, fourth umpire at test matches, et cetera, et cetera, which we can all work to all of the time. Um, but it's only a few that then get picked up and moved on to that level. And from that, you go to the international panel. And once you're on the international panel, it's then up to ICC to then decide, having seen you do games with elite guys, in your home nation, whether they think that they you would be good enough to go forward, at which point, like Michael Goff did, you get invited to go and do ODIs or under-19 World Cups overseas and test matches overseas until at some point they would either select you and put you onto the elite panel or say, yeah, but not quite enough. So you'll stay on the international panel for, for England, but you won't be selected to the elite panel. And then you said that you came through the more unconventional route. Say you've yes. got a club umpire um, just umpiring on, a, say, a Saturday, Sunday, yes. and they have that ambition to go into first-class cricket. Mm. What is the path for them? What do they need to do? Do they need to approach anyone? Do they need, do they need to get certain qualifications, badges at that level? What is the path for, 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 the, for that pool of uh, people that have got that, those are uh, yeah. aspirations. Yeah, so the pathway for a recreational umpire who has aspirations is that irrespective of where you start umpiring, your target should be within your, your county, should be the Premier League, the ECB Premier League. Um, and then from ECB Premier League, you would then potentially go to the National Counties panel. Uh, which is for rec the top level of recreational cricket. And there's about 60 guys uh, across the UK who are on that panel who will then stand in second team cricket with a, a full-time first-class umpire on occasion. Um, they will then also be selected for the national counties, three-day games, knockouts, T20s. 
Um, and from that pool of 60 or 70 individuals are then drawn those who would then go to the, the contracted list, which is effectively the reserve panel. So it's a long process. It, it's not something that happens overnight, unfortunately. Um, but those who are the best rise to the top and are in the recreational game, national county panel umpires. And some of them are then fortunate enough to be picked up from there to go through. So there's people like um, Neil Pratt, James Middlebrook, um, Chris Watts, um, other people like that who have come through the recreational game and have, have made it to the top of the national counties list um, and have then been selected by ECB to go that next step. And a general umpiring question, how much emphasis is placed on nutrition and fitness? Because the players are obviously playing and they're conducting their skills, but an umpire still has to maintain that concentration. They're on the field for every ball. Yeah. How much uh, emphasis and a word on that side of, uh, of umpiring, which perhaps a lot of people don't really mention? No, I think it's... It it's each to their own, how they deal with their, their hydration and their nutrition. Um, we get tested up at Leeds Carnegie twice a year. We have fitness tests um, to make sure that we haven't put on too much weight or that, and they measure our muscle mass against our fat mass and, and all of this sort of thing. And we're on treadmills and they, they set up one this year where they're measuring how quickly you move from behind the stumps at the, the, the boulders end to square on. For, to be in position for a run out, that sort of thing. So the testing agility as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's left more to us because the, the fitness that we need is different to that of a player in that we need, the job we do was stood still for a significant period of time. But if we do have to move, occasionally it's very quickly. So it's, it's the mental alertness, but you have to get yourself into the position where you are mentally alert enough and aware enough to go to the right side at the right time to make the right decision. Um, and we always say that the first two, three days of the season, so be that in late March, or unfortunately as it was this year, late July, the first couple of days, it's getting your back strong enough. Because you can do as many weights as you like, you can do as much running or whatever as you like, but standing still is a skill on its own. I mean, ask any, any guardsman outside Buckingham Palace when you stood there for two hours without moving because it's the small of the back that becomes the issue. And you have to get to the point where you can cope with that and deal with it. And then you go through the pain barrier and after that, everything's fine. But it just takes a couple of days to get into it. Um, and cricket has a particular rhythm as well. You have your six balls, you've taken a couple of steps, you walk out to square leg. And it's, it's about having the mental skills to be able to switch up and switch down your concentration and be able to relax for those brief periods. Because you can't, nobody can concentrate, just solely concentrate for six, seven hours. That's just physically impossible. Um, so you have to feed yourself in the right way to give you that energy that you are concentrating so that you're concentrating as hard on the first ball as you are on the last ball of the day. Um, so be that through, through energy bars, whatever it might be. Uh, my colleague and I at the last game found that Bovril, remarkably, is, is a great way of keeping yourself concentrated. Um, you know, it, 
it's each to their own. Everybody has their own little tricks for doing it. Um, but as long as everybody would come to the same result that you are switched on and you are focused and you ha you're in the right position to make the right decision at the right time, then there is no cast iron way of doing it, if that makes sense. And then any tips for aspiring umpires in terms of coping with the scrutiny? Obviously you've officiated at international level. There's a lot of, um, with DRS and different camera angles, etc. Every slight wrong decision is going to get picked up. Any tips that in terms of, uh, in terms of your coping mechanisms, if you do get a decision wrong, is it literally just moving on to the next one? But yeah, a word on that side? Things? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of mental techniques. As there, there are ones where you can envisage a room and you, you take that thought into a room and then there's a box in the room and you find the key and you put it in the box and then you lock up, lock the, lock the box and then you walk away and then you lock the door. That's one way of dealing with it. Um, for example, I made a mistake in, in the last game that I did. Um, fortunately, it wasn't particularly costly, but I made a mistake. You know, you hold your hands up to it because you can't get away from it because you have umpteen cameras and everybody's, you know, crowded around the TV screens and looking at everything that goes on. And the simple thing to realise, I think, as any official is that you are going to make mistakes and you have to accept that you are not you are not infallible you will make mistakes the the thing that i've learned from it is that if you make a mistake don't make the same one again and that that's 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 it simply we are going to make them and when you do make them accept it there's no point beating yourself up about it because if i make a mistake and then i'm still thinking about it the next ball or the next ball or the next ball i'm then second guessing everything i'm not trusting myself and i'm not trusting that i am where i am because i'm second guessing all the time so therefore i've made a decision i believed it to be correct at the time if consequently it's proved to be wrong then fair enough it's proved to be wrong i can't do anything about changing it you know the players with all due respect to them will move on from that relatively quickly you ultimately are the only one that's going to be carrying that for the next week, thinking about how did I get that wrong? I can't believe it. I must have been really stupid to get that wrong. No, you're not. You gave the best decision at that moment in time for the best reasons. Unfortunately, you still got it wrong. But it's a case of bank that away mentally and don't make that mistake again. And then one final question. How do you see uh, umpiring and officiating developing in the years going forward ask that question was obviously in the test test last test match that got played in the english summer you saw that no balls are now being called by the third umpire as opposed to the on on field do you do you see technology coming in more and more is that something that you embrace what are your thoughts absolutely i think technology is here to stay we have to embrace it we can't go back to the Oh, well, it's, it's just one camera. There's no point believing it. Technology is there. We as officials in any sport have to embrace it and get on board with it. Now, there are ways and means of getting on, on board with it, and that will be determined by the respective boards. But we have to acknowledge that we are going to use it. It, it is becoming ever more pervasive.
you know, as, as we've seen in the T20 Blast, you know, you, you walk in out there, you've got cameras on your hats, you've got microphones, you've got all this sort of stuff. Part of it is entertainment because it gets the armchair viewer nearer to the action. But also it's an effective tool, a learning tool for us as officials and for players as well. Um, and yes, front foot, no balls on TV. If that's an area that be, can be cleared up by using technology, then use it. Um, some things are potentially more subjective than objective. Um, but again, that's something that individual boards would have to, to scrutinize and, and work out how they want to approach it. But ultimately, technology is here and we have to understand how it works and use it to the best that it can be used to enhance not just officiating, but the game. Because without that, it will become something that will be used to beat officials with, which we can't afford to let happen. So we have to let it come in, but we have to work with it and it has to work with us to achieve the best results going forward. Paul, brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today. Great run through your career and um, some great insight into your today's umpiring. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks, Neil. So Neil Kagram, Cricket Last Joys, Paul Baldwin. Thank you.